The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Futures are trying to hold some gains here in the face of surging labor costs. Stated today, nearly double the estimate. Higher yields as the long end now plays catch up. 10-year 408 and the long bond at four. Our roadmap's going to begin with this monster quarter, though, for Salesforce delivering that upbeat forecast, boosting the buyback, coming out swinging against activists. Plus, Tesla's ho-hum master plan unveiling. Elon Musk meets investors but offers few specifics in terms of new car models or even financial projections. And the retail gauge of the consumer, we've got Best Buy, Macy's, and Burlington stores all reporting earnings. Let's begin with CRM, though. Surging in the pre-market, the Dow component posted that quarterly beat, issuing revenue guidance above consensus, doubling the buyback to $20 billion, as those activist investors have been seeking changes at the company. Last night on Mad Money, Mark Benioff told our Jim Cramer it is full speed ahead when it comes to accelerating profits. We have hit the hyperspace button, and we decided it's time to go. We weren't going to wait two years to fiscal year 26 to deliver this proper profitability acceleration. We were going to do that right now, and that is what is happening. As far as the guidance goes, guys, it's that operating margin guide of 27 streets, just around 22, has sort of the bulls licking their chops at the magic number of 30 we've been waiting for for so long. Yeah, the sense of urgency that was expressed in the cost-cutting uh, campaign, uh, fattening the margins in an accelerated way, that was the whole story. And, you know, the, the bear case, and it was wrong for 15 or 20 years on Salesforce was uh, on the way up. Now it was a roll-up. It was just sort of badly integrating acquisitions, but also that it was run for the employees, right? It was this very generous sales culture within Salesforce. Well, here's what's going to happen uh, in the coming fiscal year, according to Needham. Um, sales and marketing spending going from 36% down to 32%. One fiscal year, it was 40% like thereabouts before the pandemic. Stock-based compensation is a percentage of revenues. 10% has been running that for years. It's going to go down to 8 So the things that they could easily just pull these levers, or easily at least uh, say that they're going to do them, um, that goes right to the, to the margin. And so I think that's the whole story. And, and all of a sudden, also, though, revenue better uh, than, than expected. So it wasn't as if it was in the absence of a decent growth story, even though there's some deceleration on the top line. Yeah, I'm not sure it's the whole story. I mean, this seems to be an anomaly to a certain extent for the rest of the sector. You take a look at Snowflake yeah. today. You talk to any number of vendors, for example, and you get... You know, an answer that's sort of talking about elongated sales cycles, but that did not seem to be the case, or at least hurt uh, CRM, as Mike pointed out. The number itself came in higher than anticipated. The top line is not decelerating uh, as it is or seemingly is for so many other um, software as a service providers. Uh, and that's a question um, in terms of the quality of the quarter, I guess. But obviously, you can see what investors are deciding to do here. But certainly an anomaly. 
Um, not sure exactly what they did, other than what you're pointing out. Of course, cutting costs can go a long way. The 27% margin target is certainly something that is going to be applauded. Although, again, as we pointed out, uh, beginning with Jeff Smith and continuing all through all these different activists, there's been a hope that they'll get to as much as 30 or even a 35% margin target as soon as possible. That's not the number we're hearing. The buyback, though, being doubled. Some talk, I guess, vaguely about succession, but really the dis this disbanding of this M&A committee. These are all things that many of the activists had been hoping for and certainly will happily take credit for whether deserved or not, Carl. Although the question now is, having addressed the activist concerns, how does Benioff turn back to the employee base. Uh, Roth today, you know, Mike mentions the revenue or the, the, the payout target. Uh, it remains to be seen whether the employee base will react well, given a history replete with seemingly endless perks and handholding. That's Roth today on sort of, you know, what they, what they call an era of overcompensation. True. And I, I guess, you know, the question is, what kind of moment are we at if you are dissatisfied where you are at Salesforce? I mean, it, it seems as if you see general belt tightening in the industry to some degree. I mean, not that people are sitting idle for very long if they decide to leave. So, no, I mean, obviously that's the test. Um, and when I said that, by the way, that was the bear case on Salesforce for 15 years or whatever, I mean, the stock went up like 3,000% over that period of time. So I don't want to pretend as if, ah, the bear's got it right. It's more a matter of, at this stage of maturity, where the company is, what needs to be done in terms of integrating uh, some of the big deals and, uh, you know, just getting, getting margins in a place that makes sense. Because Billings growth is not going to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, kind of in these eye-popping high levels forever. And uh, this, is, this is kind of where they are. The, the pop in the stock today is, is pretty dramatic. People th did expect, part, I think, some it, good things. It, but. Yeah, but, Mike, it's also because there was most of the analysts were bearish coming into the yeah, print. Right? They don't like I it. mean, all the yep. survey work had indicated that it was probably going That's to be right. somewhat weak, and it, and it wasn't. Right. Um, as somebody said to me, they brought the thunder, not just with the, uh, with the earnings themselves, but, of course, as we point out, with the guidance yeah. and the buyback. Yeah. Uh, and everything else, if you want to point to it. Yeah, uh, Needham. Uh, Mike mentions the Needham note. Six years on the sideline is a long time yeah, right. in our universe, but here we are upgrading CRM uh, to buy. Uh, that's Needham today. By the way, uh, pre-market gain on Okta is not that far behind as they beat revenue ahead, guides above, uh, TD Cowan uh, upgrades to outperform. So a couple good software stories. Yeah, although so Snowflake is the opposite story, uh, trading at about 17 times revenues and not hitting the number. And not looking like it's got, I mean, take a look. There it is down over 9%. Um, the question on Salesforce now is what, what are the activists going to do? Uh, specific to Elliott, of course, we reported yesterday they'd nominated a slate of directors. That's not going, going away. The question is whether they really would go to a proxy fight. In a statement, Elliott, of course, saying we're seeing a lot of positive things here. We're happy about it. And going on to sort of say they're going to continue to stand by and watch very closely. Uh, and, and, you know, there's some of that. Um, the announcements are consistent with what they say or their recommendations. To be fair, of course, it's really started off by Starbird and Jeff Smith, at least publicly, last fall with us on CNBC. Um, but they continue to say, hey, we're going to keep you on notice. Does that mean that they'll go to a proxy fight? They never have. Uh, I shouldn't say that. They've never gone to a vote. They've never gone to a vote in the U.S. In okay. Korea, they went to a vote. They lost. Uh, it's the only proxy fight I believe Elliott has actually taken to a vote. So interesting. But right now, you yeah. know, they're still there. You've got the universal uh, ballot. Um, take a listen to Benioff, because he did uh, at least uh, mention the activists, uh, kind of, in his conversation, I think, with Jim. In regards to the activists, Jim, let me just tell you this. 
we can learn from everybody. I was so impressed with Mason and Value Act and Jeff too, that I put Mason on the board. So Salesforce has a great new board member, Mason Morfitt, the CEO of Value Act. I couldn't be more excited about him. And we also are adding Sasha Morfin, who's the CFO of MasterCard, amazing financial expertise. And of course, you know Arnold Donald very well, incredible executive who was the CEO of Carnival. Three amazing new board members. Jim, that's five new board members in the last 16 months. Which may be one reason, guys, why they said to Elliot, no, we're not interested in your candidates, mm. at, at least at this point, because again, as I'd reported, they seem to be fairly close to a settlement. Ultimately, though, I think um, Salesforce and perhaps its advisors said, nope, nope, you know, we're not, we're not going to just take your, take your names. Yeah. Um, so they sit there, these independent directors right now have been nominated by Elliot, uh, and we'll see. Yeah, I mean, obviously, just front-loading a lot of the a lot of the cost moves gets the stock back to where it was in the pre-market last April. Mm -hmm. So that's you know buys you some time and some benefit of the doubt, you would think. Although the activists probably weren't in there just for a trade like back to that level. So you have to see uh, you know exactly what else they might want to see happen uh, at the company. By the way, um, 27, 28 point, uh, uh, point gain in Salesforce is like 180 points on the Dow. So outside of Salesforce, Dow's down 100. Uh, so can we put to bed the, the school that says get them out of the Dow? Yeah, I mean, at least at this point, there's certainly <laughs> there's certainly no real impetus for that right now. I can name three or four other smaller <laughs> companies in the Dow that we're not really talking as much about. Can we just get rid of the Dow instead? <laughs> you hate you the could, Dow. could, but hate David's always hated it. I hate it. it. But you know, you know what the Dow is, in Tell me, Michael, what is the it's Dow? It's batting average in baseball, which is it's not the perfect measure of what the performance is, but it's the one everyone knows in their head, and they have a historical frame to put it in context. It's true. Uh, so I'm thinking OPS, but that's, that's right. right. So S&P 500 or the equal weight S&P is OPS. Yeah. Right. Which is why you talk about that a lot more than you do the Dow. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No doubt about it. And you're also a baseball fan. That's right. Uh, well, speaking of S&P components, at least, Tesla's down in the pre-market. Yesterday's Investor Day presentation by Elon Musk uh, failed to impress a lot of investors. That Master Plan 3 lacks some specifics about future cars and finances. Check out this exchange during the Q&A. When do you think we'll get a look at it, maybe a prototype? Um, second, are there any details that you think you can share in terms of the the size, the content, the performance, and then third, I think you mentioned that you would produce it in other plants in addition to Mexico. Should we take that to mean that you can launch it at an existing plant before you're finished constructing the new plant in Mexico? Uh, I think we'll actually have to probably decline that answer. Uh, we will have a proper sort of product event, but uh, we would be jumping the gun if we were to answer your questions. Maybe another uh, question, if there's, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know, anyone? All right, so no new models, no new prototypes, no data on the Cybertruck. Uh, Bloomberg today says that car, which was presented basically as an icon, is, uh, is like a Scooby-Doo costume, and it sort of haunted the whole event. Although Adam Jonas today says it was more about the drivers of cost reduction right. as some of their vertical integration uh, efforts are going to come into play soon. Placing on display the long-term ambition, the manufacturing uh, sort of prowess, the efficiency pushes. By the way, Jonas also says, um, you know, there could be a practical uh, and, and marketing-based reason that you don't immediately unveil the cheaper 
car. He says, what if you just put in an order for a $50,000, you know, uh, vehicle and you're about to come out and say, hey, really soon we're going to have one half the price that has enhanced features. So, um, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe not. Maybe this was all just about restating the mission and claiming we're going to get there. Um, 20 million, you know, cars sold in, in 2030 that who knows. Right. But to me, this was a good test of. Will the public that, you know, really does follow every utterance of Musk about Tesla and really wants to believe and wants to have a new reason to re-up their, their enthusiasm about it, are they going to take just this? And if, initially, no. I mean, uh, I, I could look at the chart over two years and say, well, this thing was going to have a hard time getting above 215 no matter what happened. It needed something really special to do it where the valuation is and how far it's come. Uh, and now it's, it's going to backslide a little bit. Um, so we can talk about how much money and you know, capital it's going to take to get to that 2030 number. 20 million vehicles is like a 16% global market share of all vehicles, if you believe what the current projections are for total sales in 2030. Now, presumably, they're all going to be EV, or a lot of them are going to be EVs, the vast majority sold in 2030. It's still a lot of cars. It's still a lot uh, from here to there. But I think Jonas's point about they're so far ahead in terms of vertical integration. He's- and it's bearish for the auto parts ecosystem. Uh, right. We've watched some of the silicon yes. vendors today lower if, if they use less silicon in the powertrain. Uh, thanks, uh, Christina Parts and Evelos. Uh, but Jonas has long said uh, that uh, Tesla's the rabbit. Everyone else is trying right. to catch it. I think that's fair. The question is, has the market kind of given them the credit for being it already? Although, you know? I mean... You know, they, they did come into the meeting sort of saying we're not going to share a lot of long-term uh, goals or information, let's call it. And they did kind of lay out to a certain extent how they're going to get costs down. Uh, yes. And they did indicate how they have the, you know, the infrastructure to do it. That could be seen as a positive. Um, it's clearly not being taken as one today. but Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and, you know, the other point that some of the sell side's making is that it, it, it was very much, you know, other executives taking a front row role and yes. describing things and kind of putting management depth on display to some degree as well. Which is important. Yes, I mean, I, I have heard a couple of people remark on the fact that in, at Tesla now, maybe Musk is more of an Ellison role exactly. than, than a, you know, and obviously he's not the CEO of Oracle any longer as Ellison, but than, uh, than a CEO role because right. they have so many talented executives now. Right. Uh, you know who you want to hear on this? Is Phil LeBeau uh, and get his reaction. Phil, what was your take? Uh, Exactly what Mike was talking about, that there's no doubt that Tesla, it has the hammer, if you will, in terms of production, cost, the ability to drive them down. Adam Jonas is spot on in what he's saying in terms of they are the rabbit. They lead, and this was their vision for how they can drive down costs even further. Now, let's be clear. I've been to a number of these with a number of automakers over the years. They almost never, never come close to hitting the projections that they will put out there in terms of, oh, we're going to cut costs by 25 or 30 percent. That doesn't mean that Tesla doesn't have that goal. It just means that you have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. Uh, But they clearly have an advantage over every other automaker in terms of EV production and the supply chain. Look, they talked about the Corpus Christi lithium refinery, it's going to be operational in 12 months. That's the vertical integration and how quickly they're bringing it together. But with regard to the next generation vehicle, Carl, you're not going to see that before the end of 25. I would be stunned if we see it before the end of 25, because it takes at least a year and a half. Even if you started right now, 
a year and a half, and that's if you're scrambling quickly to get it together. It's not going to happen. And they plan on building it at that, at that gigafactory in Mexico. So that's probably going to come online maybe 25, maybe 26, somewhere in that time range. Phil, if that's the case, um, I wonder if there's a sense out there, you've heard some commentary about this, that the current model lineup that Tesla has out there, you know, has been pretty much same-ish for a while, and you have all the other yes. uh, contenders trying to come out with fresh new stuff. Does it start to seem a little stale? It does start to seem a little stale. Look, I already hear that from my friends who have a Tesla, which is, yeah, I see everybody else driving the same vehicle as it goes down the road. We, we are, for 100 years, a society that has gravitated to new designs. At some point, all, every vehicle goes through a stage where people are like, that's great, that's great, that's great, tired of seeing it. And that is the, that is the challenge for Musk and his team as they redesign, refresh the Model Y, the Model 3, and whatever new models come out. You, you really do run against the, the whole culture in this country and around the world that we want new vehicle designs every five, six, seven years, something like that. Meantime, Phil, you're, you got some Ford numbers, right? Yeah, uh, and the February numbers, now keep in mind, February is a low-volume month for the automakers, including Ford, uh, but the numbers were solid, up 21.9% overall. EVs, and we know that they're just ramping, so they're going to be an increase here. But this is a nice gain of 68.1% with trucks up 27%. That is the bread and butter, guys. The F-150, separate from the Lightning, it is the bread and butter and remains the bread and butter for Ford. Uh, meantime, a couple of downgrades of NEO today uh, over at Barclays and JPM uh, as they go from targets in the mid-teens down to 10. I mean, after Lucid and, uh, and Rivian, uh, Phil, it's clear that others are still trying to figure it all out uh, and, catch, and, get the, and narrow that lead right. or, that Tesla has. 100% right. And, and, and look, Elon Musk has always used this phrase, manufacturing is hard. And it seems kind of trite after you hear him say it over and over and over. But it's true. Whether it's Rivian, whether it's Lucid, whether it's Neo, I mean, these guys are trying to ramp up and develop a market at the same time. We forget that that's where Tesla was back in 2013 to 2015. I remember that they would do these quarterly reports on deliveries, completely lumpy. And people would say, well, what's the deal? They would have a good quarter and then they would fall off and then they'd have a good quarter. That's what we're seeing now with the EV startups. They are trying to establish their manufacturing footprint and a market at the same time. And it's going to be like this for those guys. Yeah, uh, that was back when, uh, when the cost of capital was a lot lower uh, than it is today. Phil, thank you. Yeah. Uh, talking a bit, uh, Phil LeBeau. When we come back this morning, a lot of names to get to. We'll, uh, di we'll dive in on Snow uh, and uh, some of the retailers, including Best Buy, American Eagle. Uh, some news this morning on the Microsofts and Apples and Metas. Uh, we'll get a look at uh, what Macy said as well and how that colors the picture of retail when we return. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Looking at some quarterly numbers with the consumer in mind, Best Buy is going to open down about 2%. Uh, earnings beat, revenues in line, but the guidance a bit soft due to weaker demand for electronics. Macy's up sharply after the holiday quarter profit and full year guidance did impress the street. The comp guidance, guys, on Best Buy is the trouble spot. Uh, yep. Looking for Q1 down 10 full year down three to six, and that's coming off of a quarter where it was down nine. Yes. Um, mostly, I think, the street braced for it. Nobody expected great things. They're still dealing with a very long hangover uh, from that pull forward in demand. Uh, and as a stock, you know, it's 12 times earnings today. It was 12 times earnings five years ago. It's got this good operator in a very tough industry type status, and that was reinforced, I think, by uh, by this outlook in general. Uh, and then Macy's, you know, it's, it's one of those deals where it, managing what it can manage pretty well. Um, Clearly, this isn't, you know, a blockbuster quarter, but it's a super cheap situation. Uh, It's only five and a half billion dollar market cap, six times earnings. You know, it's that kind of thing where a little bit of uh, of better than expected goes a fairly long way. Yeah, uh, they do guide above on full year EPS. Uh, Comps were down, although they were up at Bloomies, which some people took note of. Uh, Just, as you say, trying to control what you can control. And Burlington, I guess, was the other one that actually did uh, raise guidance and uh, and seems like it's going to get rewarded for it. Uh, you know, there's a world in which you could have imagined them blaming warm weather for a miss, but they actually did okay in the last quarter and, uh, and actually lifted uh, their outlook for the current one. Um, and, I, and I would just say in terms of broader consumer, I don't know if you can sum up what, what the consumer was about in January and February, except to say had the ability to spend, did some of it. Uh, market already is positioned for uh, it's still a services story when it comes to the, the share of spending. All right. Opening bells coming up in four minutes. Don't go anywhere. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Whether the Fed is winning the inflation fight could depend on which key indicator you use. Barclay says if CPI falls to 2.8 and the Fed's preferred PCE measure lowers to 2.5, that could imply the Fed's work is nearly done since it would bring inflation closer to 2. Might complicate things if CPI falls below that at PCE. Meantime, the Journal on Monday did a piece about cooling apartment rents. Wednesday on the cooling labor market and today arguing that if you look at PCE, you're getting close. Exactly. And, and, you know, they're kind of lining up all of the leading indicators of the inputs and where the data should go and how we're going to anniversary hot numbers to say that the trend remains easing inflation. The question is, what's the pace? You have hot inflation numbers coming out of Europe overnight again uh, and jacking yields globally. So, um, you know, the Fed is where they're going to get to in June, well above five, it looks like right now. question is, is that going to be way above where the inflation rate is at that point? In which case, yeah, they might be almost up. The big board, construction company Southland Holdings, celebrating a listing via SPAC 
at the NASDAQ, it's Movello, maker of sensors for the digitization movement, also celebrating the listing via SPAC as we're back to 39.31. Uh, breath pretty negative. By the way, uh, bespoke today, nice piece. If February CPI comes in consensus yeah. and March CPI comes in consensus and you look at projected Fed funds at the end of March, you'd have real Fed funds positive by a couple, 20 basis points. Absolutely. There is an undertow to the inflation numbers that should be continuing to take hold. Um, you know, actually, you sort of peaked above PCE on the on the upper end of the Fed funds range right now, even. Um, so that's part of the process. Now, that's not super restrictive if it's just a little bit above. But yes, the, the point being, we're all, we can see the destination, roughly speaking. Now, market yields are doing what they're doing, though. So the 10-year getting above 4% this morning, uh, 4.07 or so right now, that seems to have the market, the stock market, twitchy. Um, what happened last time we went through this? October of last year, October 14th, as a matter of fact, went above 4% for the first time this cycle. And if you remember, the S&P was declining, it was down like 10% in a month. So you already had a weak stock market. We've, had, we've been going down for a month here in this market, a little bit less. And you chopped around from there. It wasn't as if 4% was, uh-oh, we got, our, got to our Waterloo moment. But you also have a situation where the 10-year yield right now is again starting to look a little stretched on the chart, probably more so than it has since October. So the, if, when you hear from trading desk is bond investors are kind of sitting back a little bit, waiting for the jobs number next week. Yeah. And so if the jobs number doesn't look so hawkish for the, in Fed terms, 4% starts to look like a good buy. Yeah, that's exactly JPM today. Uh, we may see some additional selling, they say, David, but many bond investors are sitting on the sidelines ahead of NFP, uh, so the bonds may not fully reflect the bond market's fundamental view. I don't know. 5% yeah. to you doesn't look bad to me. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. So the short end of the curve is sort of like calling out to everybody to say, uh, we're going to pay you for being cautious. Um, and so you had that dynamic, and there's no doubt that's, in, that's affecting uh, equity sentiment. It's got to be, right? It's got to be. There were big, pretty good flows into bonds into the year. Now, there's been a pretty significant outflow from equity funds over the last, whether you want to call it three months, 13 weeks, something like that. So there has been a reorientation in that direction. And it does make some sense, even if, again, when we hit 4% in October, the S&P was at like 36, 3700, yep. yep. right? So you can kind of make your peace with these levels if you feel like it's not really uh, running away from you uh, at that point. Also, I'll point out in October, triple B corporate spreads were above 200 basis points. Right now, they're like 160. So the credit market is not really disturbed yet by the macro story. And by the way, same thing with the equity sectors that are working and not working. It's the rate-sensitive defensive groups like staples, like utilities, like real estate that have been leading to the downside in the past month. So that's not a bad economic story. The question is, you know, can, can you keep that balance going for a while uh, without the bond market kind of breaking something yeah, along? It kind of leads to the, the budding discussion about commercial real estate yeah. and the impact that would have on municipal budgets and whether or not that crack would be more interesting uh, to the Fed than, say, a crack in the labor market. Oh, potentially. I mean, and, and you know, the, I, you know, the Fed. I, I don't agree with that view that they're trying to create these stress fractures in the um, in the in the market or in the economy. But it, it can happen along the way. By the way, I also think it's almost necessary for something kind of somewhat unexpected to go wrong to have this market follow that 2000 to 2002 to three pad, which is the bear case right now is, hey, we had really good rallies in, in 02. 
uh, in 01 into 02, and it didn't mean it was over. And there was still a lot more work to be done on the downside. The market wasn't cheap yet. That is true. But you also had 9-11, a massively overlevered corporate sector, massive accounting scandals, and all this other cascade that we all remember that, yeah, sure, bad stuff happens in bear markets, and so you should expect something weird. But that was a lot. <laughs> we haven't had anything overly weird happen no. yet. It's been very orderly. It has, yeah. Well, on the one hand, I mean, Goldman. I mean, is trillion dollars being wiped away from crypto market cap weird? Yeah, but I mean, not Sam Bankman-Fried, maybe, yeah. you know, but nothing... Right. Yeah. Goldman has a chart out today. 99% of borrowers have a mortgage rate below the current market rate. Incredible. And there's an argument that any corporate treasurer that hasn't prepared for whatever that may be uh, probably doesn't belong in the job. Should be fired. Yeah. Sure. I mean, look, there's some stuff. You have to roll debt every once in a while. And and, and clearly there's some floating rate out there. So there's, you know, people are going to kind of fall by the wayside, but that just happens. No. And to Carl's point on commercial real estate, there are certainly going to be buildings with capital structures that don't hold up in this market. We know that that's happening and that will continue to. But the reserves would seem to be there. Guys, back to the stock market. Obviously, we've got the S&P starting down almost half a percent. The Nasdaq, more than that, obviously. Outliers are going to be Salesforce. Meta's also up. Microsoft uh, did want to come to Activision when speaking about Microsoft because that stock is also up, although not as much as it was for a moment there on this Reuters story. Uh, EU antitrust regulators not expected to demand that Microsoft sell assets to get their approval for the $95 share purchase of Activision. Um, That's not unimportant, but it's, as we've said many times, not the main impediment to a potential transaction, that being the UK, the antitrust regulator there, the CMA, which, as we know, has already said most likely no. Now, not entirely no, and they have until the end of March right now to to submit everything they need to submit to convince them otherwise. But the belief is that there's a very narrow path from Microsoft to, uh, to deal with the concerns that the CMA has uh, and that the remedies needed might need to be more structural in nature, meaning selling things. That's something that Microsoft has said they are not uh, likely, or at least the sense is not likely to do, sell Call of Duty, right? Do a deal, a behavioral deal where you license Call of Duty, sure. But when you get the EU saying you don't need to sell assets, does it in some way put pressure on the CMA or even the FTC here in the United States by sort of at least questioning whether their review has more political overtones? Possibly. Possibly. And that is the hope of market participants who perhaps would uh, buy Activision at this point. But again, it's the CMA. We're talking about a final uh, report due April 26th. From the CMA, as I said, end of March uh, is when uh, the deadline for all responses. But we may get something much sooner than that because you can move that up. Interesting. And, you know, um, Microsoft is, is getting a little bump today. It seems also from Credit Suisse pay, making it a top pick. Um, and it really is about the chat GPT and the way that, that uh, the firm thinks it can actually monetize it. Um, to the tune of something like $40 billion in incremental revenue over multiple years down the road. So, you know, someone's trying to do the work that's, that's kind of about implementation and not just sort of the general aura of, uh, of AI around, uh, around the name. But uh, obviously there's plenty else going on with Microsoft where it's just kind of this, 
you know, machine for delivering earnings and, uh, and, and dividends and, and just that kind of franchise. But it is interesting that, that all of a sudden this is now a line item, in a, in a sense, <laughs> at least in some analyst models. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, uh, both companies and regulators arguably continue to struggle with the incredible uh, advancement in, uh, in innovation on AI. Uh, journals got this piece about Apple uh, blocking an update of an app uh, due to concerns that uh, the app, AI-driven, uh, could, could put inappropriate content in front of kids. Uh, meanwhile, a couple of uh, Democratic senators have sent a letter to Meta asking them not to ship a uh, Metaverse product. Again, a lot of concerns about material that might be presented to young people. Have you, have you guys used it at all? Um, I was using it last night. What did you ask? I was asking questions for our guest in the next um, hour, who's going to be Dan Huttenlocker. He's the dean at the MIT Schwarzman College of Computing. He's one of those who wrote that editorial I was referencing earlier in the week that was Kissinger Schmidt, and, and, and he wrote it uh, about AI and what generative AI is going to mean for all of us in society. And so I asked him for a series of questions. They weren't bad. They weren't no. bad. It's not long. It's, it's coming for us. It's coming for us all. I haven't dabbled even a bit. Yeah, I'm just in, I'm in denial about it a little bit. And <laughs> plus, just, I feel like I just see enough out there of examples of what it can and can't do. And um, I don't know. I, I just default to, you know what software does? Gets better, smarter, faster all the time. People find interesting ways to use it. Yeah, we'll this adapt. is another accelerant, and we'll see. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's... It's nothing new, as we try to make clear. It's yeah. been in the works for a long time. It has. It's just the consumer application yeah. of it now that suddenly has brought it to the fore and the enormous adoption of it by consumers. But you're right. I mean, at the corporate level, AI has been advancing consistently and taking over certain functions or, and or a huge productivity gain for other functions. Uh, and that will continue. Um, but this consumer interface now has sort of changed the game to a certain extent. I'm also um, open to the notion, I mean, we've seen it happen, the way the market reacted to it, is it just creates this other um, wedge to question the search franchise and the way we do search and just how ad-saturated the search yes. uh, you know, experience is and those types of things which you know, can change and, and, and have a little bit of a backlash even if ChatGPT doesn't take over the world. Right. But, I mean, it's, it's hard to question, though, the idea that as Microsoft starts to embed this in all of its enterprise products, that that is not going to be a huge potential help sure. uh, for those who use them and to Microsoft as well in selling them. Um, and adding and as on, a productivity enhancer. And, and as a huge yeah. productivity enhancer, again, and until the point at which, of course, the machine just takes over entirely for all of well, us. Uh, the, <laughs> um, worries, uh, the worries you're expressing were shared to some degree by Elon Musk at the event yesterday. And even, I guess you could argue, a bit of a mea culpa of what he's done to further it. Take a listen. I mean, I'm a little worried about the AI stuff. Um, I think it's uh, something, I don't know, which we should be concerned about. Uh, I don't know, I think we should need, need some kind of like regulatory authority or something that's overseeing AI development and just making sure that it's operating within the public interest and, you know, it's quite a dangerous, quite a dangerous technology. Um, and I, I, I fear I may have done some things to accelerate it. That scares the heck out of me. I don't know about you. 
I mean, he's been saying that yeah, for a while. Yeah, he has been yeah, in that camp. He has, yeah. But he's time. sitting there just saying, all right, are we really going to get some sort of public oversight board of AI? It seems hard to imagine. And if we do it here, are they going to do it in China too or right. Russia? It's going to be like through the UN? I yeah. Mean, how's that going to work? Oh, yeah, we're all, yeah, no, I mean, you know. But even like, you know, if, if it really is coming down to another version or another front in the content mitiga- uh, you know, mitigation type um, wars, uh, it maybe isn't that different. It's just harder to, to corral, I suppose. So people are trying to get out in front of it. You mentioned the metaverse, you know, the meta thing. I mean, they just don't want certain things to get to kids. That's been that's been the case all along. And if this is somehow, you know, a workaround that it's more likely to, to, to kind of find its way, it's kind of like the runaway algorithm story, you know, with YouTube, which is in the Supreme Court, right? Now. Sure. Uh, Mike, as we're talking, we did lose the 200-day yeah. on the S&P. That's the first time since uh, January 25th. Again, intraday, we'll see what yeah. happens. No, and we've been, you know, it's kind of been um, sort of flirting around it for a while. So have buckle below it. A lot of folks are talking about a little more 3,900-ish as uh, that sort of general zone as being somewhat more important. It really feels it's tough to escape the idea that it's some kind of a broad trading range. Maybe 38 is the lower end of it. Uh, It's really a low-intensity test, though. And so you're starting to have the market internally look almost a little bit oversold, as I said, as bond yields start to look stretched. So you see if there's a little bit of impetus for, uh, for any kind of mean reversion here. The earnings picture continues to really not give you much to, to, to work on in aggr- aggregate, although I think uh, Credit Suisse noted that you know, you're down slightly at this point in f- first quarter earnings year over year. X-Tech up 5 to 6%. Um, so the beat rate was really lousy. The overall aggregate outperformance of companies versus estimates was not good, uh, and the market has only partially looked through that at this point is the way I would put it. Um, uh, Mike, you know, I, I mentioned a snowflake very briefly at the top of the program. I'd like to come back to it now. I'd also like to put up a two- or three-year chart, whatever. It, I guess yeah. I'm forgetting exactly when it went public because it's representative of those stocks that you've talked about so often in terms of, remember, the multiple to revenues this thing traded. Now, at one right. point, you could have said, oh, it's 20 times revenues. That's amazing. Exactly. It's cheap. Yeah. Um, snowflake is down 14% uh, because, in part, while the results actually were better than consensus, they weren't better by much. Uh, and it was the outlook. You see it right there. Um, they also said product revenue guidance for fiscal year 24 is now 40% growth versus 47% as the ramp on recently captured customers has been slower than usual. So, you know, under consumption in the sense of their compute, large customers uh, perhaps not implementing as many use cases for using Snowflake. But I mean, Mike, there it is, right? You've talked about that. Right. Whatever. I don't know what you call that, <laughs> technically. Yeah, I mean, that's a massive uh, double top peak, whatever. But look, it, it, it also is, is interesting because by every account, it's going to thrive as a business. And so it actually has all these advantages. It's just about, that's how, at this valuation, that's how sensitive you are to slowing from 48% down to 40%. Right. In terms of your growth right. rate. So that's, that's, that's what it's. I mean, it's still a great growth company. It's right. Yeah. And it's amazing. a quarter of Salesforce's market cap, and it's like less than a tenth of the revenue. So, yeah. yep. Even with the uh, operating margin blowing past the estimate, uh, they got to six. Street was at one, two. Um, so we're looking at some losses here, uh, 39.30. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Morning, guys. Uh, six to one declining to advancing stocks. These inflation numbers just are not going in the right direction 
direction. Final unit labor costs higher than expected. The ISM yesterday, prices paid went up, the PCE on Friday, CPI. All of the recent numbers are going in the wrong direction. My emails filled with comments, Bob, the two years going to 5%. Why don't we just stay there? That's where the action is and where the excitement is right now. So you can see the impact this higher rates are having on the markets, the growthier parts of the market. Kathy Woods are great January, not great February, off to a lousy start in March. Semis are also same story. Uh, metals with good proxy for global growth have been weaker recently. Banks also a little bit weaker today. I want to put up a, another sector chart and t- mention that the consumer names are actually having a very tough time too, even worse uh, in terms of momentum. So healthcare just looks terrible the last few weeks. And anything interest rate sensitive, the REIT sector, utilities are not far from 52-week lows. They are not there yet, but consumers and interest rate-sensitive sectors really have terribly negative momentum uh, right now. And in fact, if you look at the new lows list, there's not much on the new lows list, but I tend to pay attention to new lows when big names get within 1% or 2% of new lows. They're not there yet, but Pfizer and Lilly have been terrible the last few weeks. Uh, Johnson & Johnson's looked terrible uh, recently. Uh, Hormel's looked kind of uh, on the weak side as well. Uh, Some of the other names out there haven't looked very well uh, on top of that. So I I think the important thing is just keep an eye on the momentum of the market. It's just terrible uh, right now. The inflation numbers, if you look at the S&P 500, uh, we broke, as you heard there with Mike chatting, a 3940 was the uh, 200-day moving average. You can see here the next support level is about 3800 on the S&P. That's where we were in the early part of January. So what's happening now is that the inflation numbers, these terrible numbers in the last few weeks, are starting to force the analysts and strategists to re-examine uh, uh, earnings estimates for the second half of the year. So remember what happened. We had Jonathan Golub this morning uh, at Credit Suisse. He's cut his estimates to two fi- to two ten. He was at two fifteen. But these numbers have been coming down for several months. Here we were at two fifty June of last year. We went to uh, two thirty one, two twenty nine. Now we're at two twenty two today. Golub's at two ten. A lot of strategies are are at 210 and even close to 200 right now. 2022 is 220. So 220 is break even right now. And a lot of people are now below that. The problem is uh, the concerned about earnings cuts starting to reaccelerate. So they have were cut rather dramatically, but not much in February because people started to believe the soft landing hypothesis. What's that mean? Soft landing means lower inflation and moderating rates would mean stable earnings in the second half of the year. But this hypothesis with these inflation reports may be wrong. We may have the new paradigm being higher inflation and higher rates, and that would mean earnings decline again in the second half of the year. And that is the problem that the stock market is now grappling with. They're going to start tackling second half earnings. And the bottom line, guys, is we just need a a change in the inflation narrative. Uh, Otherwise, uh, that 3,800 number is going to be very, very real very quickly. Guys, back to you. Yeah, and that's just uh, in this country. Uh, we didn't even mention uh, Eurozone inflation today, a uh, record core at 5.6. Uh, uh, Bob, thanks. Speaking of all of that, let's get a check on okay. bonds today. Yields higher across the curve. Uh, Ten-year off of the session high, uh, but still 4.06, and the 30-year still with the four-handle. Don't go anywhere. We haven't mentioned this note out of city today. We believe Disney's less interested in a mass market DTC offering and may sell at 67% stake in Hulu. Uh, We would view an acquisition of Hulu by Comcast as the net positive if it could pay below the current floor value. 
Uh, David, of course, talked with Iger about this. They, they don't offer any reason why they believe this, but yeah, by they the believe way, it. Except that they listen to him say it. I don't really know. Like, it took him two weeks to, to listen, and then that's just great analysis there. I mean, I say I have a keen sense for the obvious. <laughs> I, I don't even know what these guys are doing. Yeah. Thanks for that, City. <laughs> Watching that, of course, and, and some other things in the media space. Don't forget Mandalorian. Uh, I think we're going to talk to John Favreau in the coming days. Back in a minute. We're a big company, and uh, I'll tell you, Matthew McConaughey is an amazing person. You know that. He's done incredible work for us. You've seen the spots. You know they're award-winning. They've transformed our brand. They've given us a level of awareness, certainly, in the consumer market that we never had. And we're lucky to have a spokesperson like Matthew McConaughey. I think most companies would love to have him. All right, it's Benny off last night on Mad Money trying to defend uh, the retainer of Matt McConaughey in the face of the Times piece, which argues they're paying him quite a bit of money, yeah. uh, even as they're focusing on costs. Yeah, it seemed like it, a, an attention-catching wedge to sort of just point out the, you know, the spending and the sales and marketing culture that we talked about before. Uh, I don't know, do we have news on what Lincoln pays him uh, to be a spokesman? <laughs> I, I, I'm not really sure. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, also it's arguable, like, Salesforce is a brand that's not, like, consumer, you know, decision makers need to know a ton about. It, so. it does give me a brief moment to mention that on the call, the CFO did say that they are focused on a 30-plus margin world, so to speak, perhaps as soon as, uh, perhaps as soon as, uh, say, the first quarter of 25. Yeah, is that, that pull forward that we were talking about yesterday? Fiscal 25 is next year. Next yes, it is. That's right. So. That's yeah. right. Uh, we'll take a break here. Uh, Dow's up 50, but S&P's still in the red. Don't go away. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.